Courage is an inner resolution to go forward despite obstacles. Cowardice is submissive surrender to circumstances. Cowardice is often thought of as one of the worst of all vices. So soldiers who desert their posts, who desert their units, are punished, usually. There was a man named Eddie Slovic, who was a deserter in World War II. And he was actually executed for desertion. The only uh, U.S. soldier to be executed since the Civil War because of abandoning his post, because of desertion. Uh, The Romans in the ancient day practiced something called decimation. We hear that word and we think total obliteration. But what decimation was for the Romans was a punishment for cowardice and desertion. If a large company of soldiers was guilty of these crimes, then a tenth of that number, one out of every ten, would be singled out by lot and executed by the other soldiers. Again, for desertion. It's easy for us, it's easy for me anyway, to think about uh, cowardice and how I would, how lowly we would think of those who desert their brothers and sisters on the field of war. I'm sure it would be a bit different if I had to actually stand on the front lines with them. Uh, however, desertion deserves some sort of punishment. It's directly opposed to everything that the U.S. Marine Corps and our armed forces are about. The U.S. Marine Corps motto is Semper Fidelis, always faithful. And to abandon your brothers in war is not faithful. In fact, it's one of the highest forms of selfishness and self-preservation at the expense of your friends. And so it was with Jesus and his disciples. At his moment of greatest need, they abandoned him. In his darkest hour, they were nowhere to be found. And as we come to our text, Jesus, having lived a perfect life in obedience to the Father, having died a sacrificial death alone all by himself without his friends, he has now risen from the dead. Do you believe that truth? Do you believe that Jesus has risen from the dead? That he literally died, that his heart stopped beating, and he rose from the dead? So you have to wonder, with with all that's going on, having defeated death and hell all by himself, how will he now come back to his cowardly disciples? What will he say to them? What will he do to them? Perhaps he would come back with the anger he had when people were making his temple into a marketplace, turning over tables, rebuking his disciples for their cowardice. Perhaps he would shame them. Could you not stay with me? I told you everything. I told you I was going to die. I told you I must suffer and die and then be raised on the third day. And you didn't believe me. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves for not believing me. Perhaps we would have come back with self-pity, feeling sorry for ourselves that no one stood by us in our time of need. But as we will see, Jesus rejects all that. And to his disciples, to those deserters, he gives not punishment, but peace. He gives them peace. And though each one of us is guilty of divine desertion, 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us peace. Look at our text with me. John 20, 19 to 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. May God add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Our theme for this morning from this text is this. By Jesus' death and resurrection, he gives peace to his people. By Jesus' death and resurrection, he gives peace to his people. You know, peace is what the world needs. Just take a look around our world this moment in time, and there is a significant lack of peace. Terror attacks, threats of war, actual war. These things characterize our world. There's no peace in politics. It's all attack and mock, insult and divide. There's no peace in our circumstances, just in our daily lives. I'm I'm sure you've heard even the last few days, and some of you have been affected by the terrible tragedies that have happened in and around Wake Forest. There was a woman killed in a, a car accident Tuesday in Wake Forest on Capitol Boulevard. There was a woman killed in Zebulon in a car accident also on Tuesday. There was a shooting just uh, two days ago in which three people lost their lives. No peace. We live in a very broken world. And it seems there is no peace to be found anywhere. But the truth of the scripture and the truth of our passage this morning reminds us there is peace. And this peace is found in no other place than the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. You will not find peace in this world without him, not ultimately in politics or education, definitely not through war. And you will not find peace in the age to come without him either. You won't find peace in the age to come for your, from your morals, from your meditation, from your penance, 
Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and he gives this peace to all who come to him and find their hope in him. So from our text, I want us to consider this peace that Jesus gives from his resurrection. This peace Jesus brings when he comes back from the dead. So first notice that this peace gives us strength. This peace gives us strength. This is the first day of the week, the day Jesus rose from the dead. He's already appeared to Mary in John's account. And she went, as Jesus told her to, to announce to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. The disciples had been mourning, no doubt. And yet there were these hints that something's going on, that something is happening. Peter and John had seen the empty tomb. Mary had seen Jesus himself. They're, they're thinking, what is going on here? There's probably quite a bit of excitement and anticipation. And yet at the same time, this is also mixed with fear. John notes that the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Fear is what had led Peter to deny Jesus three times. Fear is what caused the disciples to, uh, in cowardice, fall away from him. And fear is what led them to huddle together in a locked house after Jesus' death. And can you blame them? If the Jews had gone to such lengths to kill their master, maybe they would want to finish the job, come after his followers as well. And mysteriously, Jesus, John says, appears in their midst. He appears to them. Locked doors are no problem for the resurrected Jesus. And he says to them, not a curse as we might expect, but a blessing. Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his, set, and his side. And by this, Jesus is essentially proving to them who he was. And they rejoiced at seeing the Lord. They rejoiced. Can you imagine the joy that they must have had when they saw him and his wounds and recognized that it was Jesus himself? Now, peace be with you would have been an ordinary greeting of the time. But with Jesus' repetition in the following verses, his followers would be led after the fact to reflect, reflect, reflect a bit more on what Jesus was saying. So what I want us to see from this is just a minor point, but one which is full of hope and comfort for all who find their hope in Christ. Jesus' resurrection gives us peace. And this peace gives us strength to face the difficult circumstances of our lives. What does the hymn say? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, and life is worth the living just because he lives. One man has said, Children show scars like medals. It's a testament to their strength, to their ability to overcome pain and difficulty. And when Jesus says, peace be with you, and shows his wounds to his disciples, it's as if he's saying, here I am, I have conquered death and hell. Now what do you have to fear? And I want to tell you that Jesus has overcome death. And if you come to him in faith, he will be with you and give you this peace. Now, of course, there is a lot of nuance to this because the temptation might be for us to veer off into a sort of prosperity theology here. Prosperity theology says that Jesus rose from the dead and if I trust him, he will spare me from anything bad happening from me, 
to me. But the truth is more difficult than that, isn't it? God doesn't spare us from pain or difficulties or sorrows or tears in this life. Rather, He gives us strength to endure them. He gives us His presence. He gives us His promise. He gives us His promise that He will never leave us or forsake us. That in the midst of the trials, He is with us and He is for us. And He is working for our good. And He gives us a promise that one day He will make all things right. And He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Now what this reminds us of is what is called the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is already here and breaking into this present age. And yet it's not quite fully here yet. It has broken through into this age, and yet we still pray, Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus has conquered death and hell, and yet we wait for its full consummation when He will return. And in the same way, we experience a great comfort and peace in that Jesus has risen from the dead. After all, He has conquered death. And if He has conquered death, then not even death can conquer us who are united to Him by faith. And if we don't have to fear death, well, then there's nothing we have to fear. It was Robert Murray McShane who said, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, he says, distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is alive. He is sovereign over your circumstances. He is with you. And He is interceding on your behalf at the throne of the Father. And if God loves to hear the prayers of His people, how much more does He love to hear the prayers of the Son of God, Jesus Himself. He's praying with you. And this peace of the resurrection gives us strength. But really, this peace in our temporary circumstances only comes from having a greater peace. The peace that Jesus gives strengthens us because, our second point, truth, the peace He gives is what reconciles us to God. This peace... This resurrection peace reconciles us to God. So the ground for our peace in difficult circumstances is not just that everything's going to turn out okay, we're fine, we'll, we'll forget about it in 20 years down the road, it'll be a distant memory. This ground for our peace in difficult circumstances is that we have peace with God. When Jesus shows his wounds to his disciples, he's not simply proving who he is. He's not simply proving his identity. He is also displaying the basis for the peace he pronounces over his people. Jesus' repetition and his connection of his words to his wounds shows us that the peace he gives to his people flows from his wounds for them. If Jesus had died on the cross but not been risen from the dead then what would we say? I remember hearing a story about a Christian monk being interviewed. He was asked by the interviewer, what if one day you come towards the end of your life and somehow it is proven without a doubt that Jesus 
never lived, that he never died, and he never rose from the dead. What would you say to that? And the Christian monk said something we might be tempted to say. He said, I would be okay with that because a life lived with these morals and for these virtues is absolutely worth it. That's what he said. It's not what Paul says, however. Our response to that must be, no, that is false. For if Jesus didn't die on the cross, then our sins have not been paid for. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then he wasn't really who he said he was. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are still in our sins. We are still at enmity with God. And he says, if we find that we've been living for something that was not true, we of all people should be pitied above anyone else. We all by nature have deserted God, our maker. He created us for his own glory. He created us to enjoy him and to in glory and to glorify him. And none of us has, has done so. We have turned away from him and made ourselves his enemies. And what all humanity has deserved is for Jesus to come back from the dead and destroy everyone who deserted him. Everyone who doubted him, everyone who put him there on the cross, and you know we put him there by our sins. But he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Rather, he comes back from the dead and says to his followers who deserted him, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Since Jesus rose from the dead, everything he said and everything he did has been vindicated as true. Every judgment, every statement, every promise is true. He is who he said he is. And the Son of God who came to save sinners and reconcile them to God is who he said he is. The biggest problem humans have is that we are by nature separated from God and at enmity with Him, but Christ brings peace. You will only find peace with God through the resurrected Christ. He has purchased peace with His wounds. So friends, you will not have peace with God through your own moral effort. Trying to get to God by religious performance is and will be a treadmill of death for you. You will not have peace with God through your own strivings, through your own spiritual disciplines, through your own Moral resolutions to do better and try harder and pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Peace with God is only found in Christ who morally performed on sinners' behalf. In Christ who died in our place. In Christ who absorbed the wrath of God and paid the penalty for sin. For he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only way we will have peace with God. Jesus gives us peace by his resurrection, both an inward peace which which strengthens us and then an objective peace which reconciles us to God. But notice what happens next in John's account. And here our third truth about this peace that Jesus gives by his resurrection. This peace which Jesus gives propels us outward. 
The peace that Jesus gives by his resurrection propels us outward. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now I'm sure I could preach an entire sermon or two or three on just these few verses. But, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but for now I mainly want you to see that the resurrected Christ sends His people outward. It propels us outward to others. He repeats this blessing, peace be with you, and now He connects this blessing of peace to the sending out of His disciples. We see here a commission We see authority. We see empowerment. See the commission. Jesus commissions his followers to go. That's sending them out. As the Father has sent him, so he is sending them. Jesus is involving his people in his mission. Now his mission and that of his followers is distinguished. It is not exactly the same. His is the ultimate work. Paying for the sins of his people. Saving them from their sins. And their work, the work of his people... Their mission is dependent upon His. The mission He gives them is that of proclaiming His work. Proclaiming His person and work for sinners. So there's the commission, the sending out. But that commission also inherently includes authority. You remember in Matthew's Gospel, the Great Commission, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So his commission includes a certain authority. Jesus gives the authority to his disciples. And by extension, as they were representatives of his church, he gives this authority to his church. So this authority is spelled out in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So this is the authority that Jesus has given his church. This, is, this points to the importance of the local church as an expression of the church university, universal and its authority as a local church to take in members, to receive members. When we receive members, essentially what we're doing is we are affirming, yes, we believe, as best we can tell, that this person is a Christian. We believe their profession of faith. We believe that they are walking and producing fruit in line with their profession of faith. Jesus says, if you forgive these sins, they're forgiven. But if not, they are withheld. So as the church proclaims this message of the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners and risen from the dead. And as people either receive it or reject it, the church marks those who belong to Christ. Those who receive the message and trust in Christ, their sins are forgiven. But those who reject Him, forgiveness is withheld. But notice also the empowerment that Jesus gives them. When He had said this, verse 22, He breathed and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, it seems to me that this is uh, a a kind of partial fulfillment of his promise of the Holy Spirit, which anticipates and leads to the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts 2 at Pentecost. 
But don't miss the significance here. Jesus, by his resurrection and the peace that he brings, is empowering his church to fulfill the mission he has given them. He's not only giving them a a responsibility and a commission and authority, he's giving them the power of his presence to carry it out. The reason we can be confident in our witness to others is because we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Not because of our eloquence or our confidence in what we have to say, but because the Spirit indwells us and empowers us. This is the Spirit of the one who rose from the dead. Can he not do all things? Can he not save any and all who come to him? Can he who rose from the dead not give our lifeless lips the words to say at the appropriate time and pierce the hardened heart with his word? Can he not make effective the words we speak of Christ which seem only to fall down dead at our feet? Yes, he can. And he will. For just as he himself was raised from the dead, he will give life to those who are dead in sin and transgression. And he will do so. This is, this is an amazing truth. This is an amazing truth. He will do so through his people, through jars of clay, telling the message of what Jesus has done to save sinners. He does this through us speaking words. And friends, this is why the resurrection and the peace that Jesus gives propels us outward. We cannot blame the sovereignty of God for our weak evangelism. We cannot blame the doctrine of election for our ignoring the Great Commission. So what will this look like? What will it look like for our church to be propelled outward by the dying and rising Christ, the Son of God? What will it look like for you as a family? What will it look like for you as a family to be propelled outward? What will it mean for you individually? Let's spend some time considering these things. Next month, we'll be studying Uh, spending a few Sunday mornings considering this very thing, this evangelism and speaking the gospel. And I hope you'll commit to being there and participating in those discussions. But also maybe take some time as a family and consider what what would it mean for you to be propelled outward for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others? And it propels us outward because the peace that Christ gives is exactly what our world needs. This is our last point and kind of a a restatement. The peace which Jesus gives is what the world so desperately needs. Jesus gives this blessing once more in our text. Peace be with you. This time, as Thomas is present, who said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger there, I will never believe. So this this took place the next Sunday Jesus shows up among his disciples in the same way as before, doors locked, all of them together, and he shows his wounds to Thomas and says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Don't be an unbeliever. Be a believer. And look at verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now I want you to notice here that Thomas isn't necessarily wavering in his commitment to Jesus. He just doesn't think Jesus is alive. He was committed to Christ still. Though he had fallen away with the other disciples, he still loves Jesus. He doesn't believe in the resurrection. He has heard reports about it from multiple sources, but unless he sees it for himself, he won't believe it. Maybe they were just delusional in their hope, but Thomas knows what happens when someone dies. They die, and they don't come back to life. Their hearts stop beating. Their lungs do not fill with air. Their brain waves stop. They are dead. It's common sense, right? What we learn from this, it, it is not enough to be committed to Jesus if you don't really know who he is. If you don't know him in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. It's not enough to be committed to Jesus if you only see him as a good man or a good teacher. Rather, you must know Jesus in his identity and in his work. You must know him as the crucified and rising Christ, the one who is fully God and fully man, the one through whom all things were made and the one through whom we have life because he himself is the resurrection and the life. And you must believe in him. That means trust in him. Not just believe facts about him. Not just believe that he died and rose from the dead. Not just believe that he is the son of God. But entrust yourself to him. Rely upon him. Find in him that he is your only hope. And for anyone who believes in him. They will live, Jesus says, and never die. Now, Jesus adds this blessing in response to Thomas's sight belief. He doesn't rebuke him here, and if he does, it's only a gentle rebuke. Even now, he is patient with his followers. He's gentle toward them. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now, this involves, of course, many people who were alive during the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, and so too with John's readers. And everyone else from there on until the present day haven't seen the resurrected Lord. So the question is, if they don't see, then how will they believe? If they don't see the resurrected Lord, how will they believe? And to that we say with John, by the word of the gospel. By the written and spoken word of Christ, he will save sinners. Now, for our Easter festivities, we usually focus mainly on how we feel about the resurrection of Christ. We might encourage with one another with the words, and we have already, He is risen, and the congregation said, He is risen, he is risen indeed. We remember what Christ did, and it gives us Hope of what he will do in giving to us the bodily resurrection. 
We wonder at the glory that Jesus once was dead but is now alive. We rejoice in that although we are weak and have pains and suffer and sin, yet one day we will be resurrected and have a glorified body forever. Amen? Amen. And we should do all those things. We should rejoice in those things. But let us not forget that this hope that we have, this peace that we have, this joy that we have is the very thing that our world so desperately needs. We cannot feel the inward joy of the resurrection and ignore its outward impulse because it was this very thing that brought the gospel to us who are believers. Do you remember who told you the message of Jesus? Do you remember who it was? Who it was that God used to bring you to faith? Perhaps a mother or a father, a brother or a sister, a pastor, a friend, maybe a combination of several of those. Now ask yourself, who might the Lord be pleased to save through the message of the gospel coming from my lips? Let's pray together. Our Father, we rejoice at Christ, our Savior, who died and rose from the dead and brought back not anger but peace, who gives us peace with you by his blood, who gives us strength in the midst of our circumstances, who propels us outward to a dying world to offer life from Christ himself. Would you move us in response to your word? Would you move us this day to respond in faith and obedience to all that you have for us in this passage? We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.